We've been working our way through the books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, we've actually coming up on a year and a half working our way through these uh, these two books. And one of the things that we've uh, we've seen is that what God has uh, been seeking to communicate to His people is that His kingdom is coming. But his kingdom is going to be established through his chosen king, through David and the one who would eventually come from him who would rule and reign forever. Uh, The people uh, rejected God as their king and wanted to set up a king that was like the other nations, that reflected the priorities, the values, the way of ruling, that was like the nations. But God is saying, no, I'm going to establish a king and the king that my people need, and ultimately the king who will come that will bring my everlasting kingdom will be a king who is like and reflects me, my priorities, my character, my heart in the world. As we're closing up on uh, uh, the book of, uh, of Second Samuel, um, over these last few chapters, um, chapter 21 and chapter 24, we're going to see a contrast between David and Saul. But in this chapter this week, we're going to see uh, particularly a comparison that comes from uh, the way that, that, that Saul rules and the way that he lived among God's people and the way that David does, pointing us to show us that what we need is a king that reflects the character and the priorities of our God. And that as God's people, that's the kind of king that we should long for And in fact, that's the kind of king we should recognize that we have in Christ Jesus. So if you would, look with me. We're in uh, chapter 21 of the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, We're just going to look at uh, about half of this this chapter this morning, uh, verses 1 through 14. So if you would, uh, follow along with me there in your copy of God's Word. We're starting uh, there in, in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of Yahweh. And Yahweh said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of Yahweh? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before Yahweh at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of Yahweh, And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of Yahweh that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni, and Mephibosheth. 
And the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And uh, they hanged them on the mountain before Yahweh. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest, the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stole them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day that the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up uh, from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Let's pray. God, we pray and ask uh, that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word this morning, uh, that your word would not return void as it is read, as it is proclaimed, uh, that you would help me and my words communicate and reflect you well, and you would help all of us understand what you would have for us, your people, from your scriptures this morning. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, again, it's important for us to, uh, to be reminded that the king in Israel ruled on the throne of God. They were not the ultimate ones in authority in the kingdom. God was the true king of his people. And the king over God's people was to reflect to the people the character of their God. And so this morning, as we look in this passage, uh, one of the things that we're going to hope that we will be able to do is to see how God's character should be reflected in in the practice, in the life, in the ruling of his king. And that's the kind of king that we should hope for. Uh, the first uh, thing that comes out in this passage is that, uh, that our God, whom the king should reflect, is a God who keeps oaths. He keeps his oaths. Notice, that that's one of the things that comes up, especially in this contrast between David and Solomon. I mean, David and Saul. Notice how it comes up here in, uh, in verse 2. The king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn or made an oath to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and of Judah. Here, uh, uh, Israel had made this oath to uh, the Gibeonites, uh, but Saul broke it. He is not one who keeps oaths. Notice how, though, that's in contrast to David. Notice down in verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of Yahweh that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Uh, The language there is uh, is the, the same. 
that Israel had sworn or had made an oath, and David was the one who made an oath. But notice the difference. Saul is the one who breaks oaths. David is the one who keeps oaths. And if our, uh, the king of God's people is to reflect the heart and the character and the priority of the true king of Israel, then the king of God's people must keep oaths. Why is this oath important? Why is it significant? Well, in order to understand that, we've got to go back and understand what's going on with the, the Gibeonites. Who are they? What is this oath that was made? And to understand this, you have to turn back to the book of Joshua. When uh, in chapters 9 and 10, God had promised that he was going to uh, bless Abraham and make him great and that he was going to give Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan. But before that happened, uh, before he sent the people of Israel in, not just to claim their land, but to judge the sins of the Amorites who were there, uh, God was going to send uh, the, the people in there to, uh, to do that. And as they went in, God did mighty works. Uh, he threw uh, his mighty wonders and works. He destroyed Jericho. Uh, the same thing happened later at the next town, Ai. But the interesting thing that what began to happen is that the people of the land heard of God's mighty work. They heard and saw that he was more powerful and stronger than their gods and was defeating them. What the, the nations and the city-states around Jericho and Ai did is that they gathered themselves together and hardened their hearts against God and said, we will defeat him. He will not take us over. That happened almost without exception. There were two exceptions within the book of Joshua and when the people came in to conquer the promised land of people who did not harden their hearts and set themselves up against the God of Israel. One was Rahab, who shifted her allegiance from the town of Jericho and their false gods and gave her heart to the God of Israel, and she was saved and redeemed. The other people who did this were the Gibeonites. Now, the Gibeonites were used to operating among the, uh, the, the gods of Canaan, and so they thought you had to kind of manipulate and work and deceive these gods in order to get what you needed from them. And so what they did is they, hid, they, they, they deceived Joshua and the people of Israel, thinking that they were far away from outside of the land, and they came before him and said, will you make a treaty with us? And Joshua and the people of Israel didn't seek God to find out, is this really where these people are from? And they made a treaty with the people of Gibeon. Uh, well, it came to come to find out, they found out that they were actually just neighbors, uh, not very far from, uh, from where the people of uh, Israel were at that time. But because they had made this vow before God to the Gibeonites that they would not destroy them, they kept their promise. And in fact, God honored this vow that they made because after this, when the nations in this coalition that the Gibeonites were a part of, when they found out that the Gibeonites had given their allegiance to the God of Israel, they sought to attack and destroy and wipe out the Gibeonites. And you know what God did? He sent the people of Israel in to fight for them. And God did defeated this coalition of people against the Gibeonites with incredible signs and wonders. In fact, God killed more people who were against the Gibeonites than the Israelites did. 
Joshua prayed and asked that God would do something to enable them to defeat it, and God stopped the sun and the sky so that the battle could continue, so that the Gibeonites would be delivered. You see, what God is showing and demonstrating is that He is a God that keeps oaths and promises. And when His people, who represent Him, say, the character of our God is one who keeps promises, and we are making a promise to you. If Israel were to go against that, they would be reflecting poorly to the nations something about the character of their God. The character of their God who keeps his promises. Think about the promises that our God has made. The promise that he made to Adam and Eve. That your sin is not the end of the story. I'm going to send one who will come from you, who will defeat the serpent. And who will bring an end and overcome all of this problem that you have brought in. The promise that he made to Abraham to give his people land. With the promise that he made to Noah, that I will not judge the world again through a flood. The promise that he gave to David, there will be a heir who will sit on your throne and he will rule and he will reign forever. Think about all those promises. Every single one of them were fulfilled. God kept every one of them. There's nothing in his character that reflects to us that he is a God who doesn't keep the oaths that he makes. But one oath in particular that keeps getting repeated that he made to Abraham, that he repeated to Isaac, that he repeated to Jacob, when he's talking about what he's going to do among Abraham and his descendants, is he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Kings are going to come from you. You will develop into a nation. But I'm going to bless you, and through you, every family of the earth will be blessed. All the nations will be blessed through a particular offspring of Abraham. You see, God's focus wasn't just Israel for the sake of Israel. What God's oaths and promises were is that I'm going to bless Israel so that the nations will be reached with the good news of the glory of the God of Israel, that forgiveness and salvation can be found only in Him and a relationship with Him. But notice, Saul's focus is not on the glory and honor of his God and that his character would be represented in the world. Notice what Saul's focus is. Look in verse 2. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. You see, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was from the town of Gibeah. And not far from where Saul grew up were the Gibeonites and the land where they dwelt, where God had given them a place to live within Israel where their punishment for deceiving the people of Israel was that they were going to be those who worked to cut wood and draw water for the temple and the tabernacle so that the true worship and the mercy of God could be demonstrated and experienced by His people at the temple. But Saul's purpose and his intention... Notice what, it, what the Gibeonites say in verse 5. 
the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. What's Saul's intention? There should be no blessing for the nations among the people of Israel. That's Saul's focus. His desire is not for the glory and honor of God. His desire is to see Israel and only Israel experience blessing. And he's willing to wipe out any and everyone who he sees coming into conflict with that. You see how that goes against the character of our God? Whose desire is to see one who will come, who will bring blessing to the nations? Saul fails to do that. He is not a king who keeps oaths, and he fails to reflect the character of a God who keeps oaths. But David, on the other hand, he does keep oaths, although imperfectly, right? Think about how David's lived in the world. There's times where we see David bringing great blessing to the nations. Remember, many of his most faithful servants, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, those guys that we mentioned and saw before, those were from the lands around them, from the areas of the Philistines. There's places where we see David giving and and demonstrating and showing blessing to uh, the nations. But we also see him doing so inconsistently. Remember Uriah? Uriah was a Hittite. Did Uriah experience blessing among the people of Israel? He sure did, until he encountered Israel's king. You see, what it shows us is that what we need and what we long for is a king who will perfectly reflect the God who keeps oaths and promises. Saul did not do that at all. David did it imperfectly. But God promised with an oath that he would send one who would do it perfectly and completely. Jesus. Who wasn't just any mere man. He was God in the flesh who ruled and reigned on God's throne. Jesus, who suffered and died on behalf of his people, when he rose from the dead and before he ascended to his Father, guess what he communicated to his people? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, only to Israel and forget the nations because it's all about us. No. Now that I am on the throne, now is the time for the nations to hear the good news of the gospel and those who aren't like you for them to come in. I have all authority, so go to the nations and communicate to them. The God of Israel has sent his Messiah, and he rules, and he reigns, and forgiveness is on offer to all who will come to him. The dividing wall has been taken down. There is only one people of God, and call the nations to come in. Jesus does it perfectly. What about us? We are now here, representatives of our God. We aren't the king, but we still have a role to reflect the character of our God in the world. The people were to emulate the king, their representative, their model. What about us? As we think about the character of our God who keeps his oaths and his promises, what about the things that he's promised? As we think about his offer of the gospel to the nations, One, are are we eager 
to share and communicate this gospel, to proclaim the good news of the God who keeps oaths and promises, who made a covenant promise to his people and offers that offer to all who would hope and rest in him that forgiveness can be found? Are, are, are we eager to see that good news of that message spread to those who aren't like us? Most of us are from the nations. We're Gentiles. We are aliens and strangers from the God of Israel and from those promises. Until King Jesus came, he ruled and reigned and he leads and has led his people in bringing the good news of the message of the gospel to the nations. But what about us? Do we harden our hearts or communicate the, the good news of the message of the gospel or fellowship within our people or within our families or within our community are only for people who look like us? Or are we representing and reflecting the character of our God who gives oaths and promises that in Jesus all can be brought in and made right and be seated at his table as God's family and his guests? You see, we have a God who keeps his oaths and promises and all have been fulfilled in Christ. But another thing that we see in this chapter is not just that we have a God who keeps oaths and therefore we need a king who keeps oaths, but we have a God who requires atonement. Notice what it says about Saul there in verse, or beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. God is bringing consequences and punishment on the people of Israel for what's going on. This famine isn't just uh, some sort of abnormal weather pattern that has happened. Not even just one that is prolonged for several years. No, this is directly coming about because of what God is doing to the people because of this sin. Notice what he calls it. David seeks the face of Yahweh, which again, notice that's something that we haven't seen in many, many chapters. And what is it that God communicates to him? There is blood guilt. Blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Saul has guilt upon him. He's the representative of the people. Not only is it on Saul, but it's on his entire house. And now we're also seeing it's not just Saul and his house that are affected due to this guilt, but the consequences have extended to the entire nation. And all of them now are suffering due to this sin and this rebellion and this guilt that is on Saul and his household. In fact, the language that David uses when he goes and talks to the Gibeonites, is thinking through what do we do to deal with this sin that we have? To pay the penalty that is needed so that our relationship with God will be made right and be restored. That's what he, the language that he uses is this language of atonement. Look in verse 3. David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you and how shall I make atonement? that you may bless the heritage of Yahweh. David is one who recognizes we serve a God who requires atonement. He requires the penalty and the cost of our sin to be paid, and he's seeking to make sure it happens. And in fact, that's what goes on. Notice, this, the, the, uh, the execution of Saul's sons was not done in vengeance by David. David isn't seeking here to wipe out 
the heritage of Saul so that he can establish his kingdom. Now, what is going on here with Saul's descendants is because God is a God who requires atonement. Notice even the language that they use in verses 6 and 7. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before Yahweh at Gibeah of Saul. And then later, as it uh, goes on down in verse 9, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before Yahweh. You see, what's being recognized and pointed out here is that the death of these sons of Saul is to make atonement, to deal with and pay for and remove the sin and the consequences that are on God's people due to their sin. This is to satisfy the just penalty and wrath of God. It seems uh, uh, maybe hard for us to, uh, to think about in, our, our, in some ways our modern sensibilities. This seems, seems to be a pretty gruesome response. That you're, you're going to wipe out seven of these, this guy's descendants? We need to think about it. There's another element of what's going on here, of the, the, uh, the atonement that God requires and the justice. What was Saul seeking to do? He was seeking to completely wipe out the Gibeonites so that they would no longer exist among Israel. And what is the penalty here that we find? That seven of Saul's sons, seven, it's a Hebrew number that represents completeness. That symbolically, seven of Saul's sons, or two of his sons and five of his grandsons, are going to be killed in response. You wanted to wipe out the people of of Gibeon? Then what will happen, Saul, is that your family will be wiped out, except for one, except for Mephibosheth. Because... God's king made a covenant with Jonathan, and Mephibosheth was spared. But what we see here is that this gruesome nature, the costliness of atonement, what is going on here draws exactly from uh, Numbers chapter uh, 35, the consequence for murder. Listen to what God says to his people in Numbers 35. Verse 33 and following. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, Yahweh, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. Do you recognize what's going on here? It is because the holy and righteous God dwells among you that you cannot dwell in His midst and He can't dwell in yours if sin is not dealt with. And the cost for sin is blood. For murder, it requires the loss of the life of the one who committed the murder. Here, Saul's already dead, so it's being extended to his sons. But remember, God is, we've already seen Him deal with this before. What was the consequence of David's murder of Uriah? David didn't die. But one died in David's place. Do you remember? It was the son that was born to him in Bathsheba. You see, the cost of sin 
And then what atonement requires is blood. We've seen this throughout the scriptures. Bulls, goats, shed, and slain. That you would come up and you would have to lay your hand on the head of the goat or the sheep and say, I am identifying with this sheep or this bull. And when its neck is slit and its blood is poured out, it is proclaiming that this one is dying in my place. Without the shedding of blood, there is no removal of sin. And the wages and the cost of our sin and what our God requires is death. If we want to see the character of our God, who is a just God, who requires atonement for the sin of humanity, then if we think that this is gruesome and costly, I mean, look at Rizpah's response. The grief she has, the wonder she has, will the death of my sons and my nephews bring an end to this? You see and experience her pain and her grief, the loss she experienced. Atonement is costly. But we should know that, shouldn't we? As we look to the cross. We should not be surprised that God would necessitate blood for our sin, for the consequences of our rebellion against Him. And when we see the cross, we recognize this God who requires atonement is also the God who takes on flesh, who enters into our world, and who pays the ultimate price and cost of that atonement. That actually leads us into the last thing that we see. We have a God who keeps His oaths. We have a God who requires atonement. We've already seen that Jesus is the one who keeps oaths fully and completely, and He is the one who does what is necessary to make sure atonement happens. But also what we see is we see a God in this passage who extends mercy. It might not seem like it on first glance. This bloodshed, people being hung on trees or posts. But notice... What it tells us in verse 9 and 10. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before Yahweh. The seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. Rizpah is out there mourning and grieving, keeping the birds away, keeping the beasts of the field away so that they would not eat and devour and bring more shame and dishonor onto these who had been hung as a curse and for the penalty before God. But she's sitting there wondering, will God accept this? Will their death do what is necessary to remove the blood guilt and the sin that is on our land and on our people? And so she's out there grieving and watching and waiting. Was this necessary? Will it accomplish what is needed? And she's out there until the rain comes. What brings famine? Three years of famine. The lack of rain. What signals the end of famine? Rain. Here, God, 
responds to this payment of atonement by extending mercy and bringing an end to the famine. Why is that mercy? Well, it's mercy because He's actually the one who has provided the way and the means for the atonement to happen. The people of Israel didn't come up with these ideas. God in His grace and mercy says, You are sinners. You will perish and be wiped out in my presence, but I am giving you a means by which to deal with your sin so that I can live in your midst and you can dwell with me. Notice what happens in verse 14. They did all that the king commanded, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. God, in his grace and his mercy, does not give us what we deserve, does not extend to us the full uh, pouring out of his wrath and his justice on his people, but he accepts atonement and the death of another so that others can be delivered and made right. Notice what we have seen in this passage is that with Saul as the king, the people are suffering because of the sin of the king. But when Jesus, God's king, comes, he suffers. He suffers not for his own sin, but he suffers for the sin of the people. The king suffers for the people's sin. And the king, through his death, purchases and secures atonement and deliverance and redemption for the people. God, in his grace and mercy, became one who hung on a tree as a curse for the people, just like the sons of Saul were hung before the Lord to secure atonement and removal of this penalty for the slaughter of the Gibeonites. Here we see evidence of our good and gracious God all throughout this passage. In fact, even going back to the Gibeonites, who God in His grace and mercy receive their imperfect repentance Their desire to say, look, we know we're done for. Your God is the one living and true God. We're going to do whatever is necessary so that we will escape His wrath and His curse, even if it means we have to deceive you. But God in His grace and His mercy forgives the Gibeonites. They and Rahab alone are the only ones who are not slaughtered and punished for their sin. And God brings the Gibeonites into His kingdom They become a part of the covenant people of God. And for the rest of their lives, they serve and participate in the worship of God and communicate to the nation of Israel who has to come and witness and see the work of the Gibeonites as they experience God's mercy and grace to them. The Gibeonites are a testimony to the people of Israel of the mercy of God who saves enemies and brings them in and turns them into worshipers and those who hope and rest in Him. And here again, the Gibeonites call out for the mercy and the provision of their God, and He acts on their behalf. We have the perfect King, one who would die and suffer in our place. Why would we give our allegiance 
Why would we give our hearts anywhere else? Jesus rules and reigns. He perfectly keeps every oath and promise and fulfills every oath and promise of our God. Jesus does what is necessary to secure the atonement that is required for us as God's people and His mercy is evidenced and poured out upon us as we trust and rest in Him. His death for us. Him paying the penalty for sin that we deserved. What a God. What a King. The good news of the Gospel for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You uh, that You have fulfilled all of the promises of our God. We thank you that they are yes and amen in you. We pray that as your people, our hope and our confidence would be in you as our king, that we would give you our allegiance, our loyalty, our hope, and our trust, since you have brought us in and blessed us in yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.